another episode of the Agile Weekly Podcast. I'm Clayton Langelzigich. I'm Derek Neighbors. And I'm Roy Vanwater. And we've got a few topics today. And the first one we're going to start out with is um, about product owner availability on a Scrum team. So how, if I'm a product owner, um, how available should I be to the team? Should I be just sitting there waiting for them to ask me something? In my perfect world. Yeah, like you'll be you'll be sitting with with the rest of the team, and um, not necessarily waiting to be asked something, but you're available if something is needing to be asked. But in the meantime, there's tons of other things that you can do, like um, backlog grooming and uh, communication with stakeholders and, and that type of thing. But you're saying I should be available if the team needs something from me. I should pretty much be available within almost immediate. I don't know about should. I, I, if I was a team member, that's what I would want. Okay. I don't know if that's realistic to set an expectation like that. Like, I don't know if I can say, like, you need to be available within two minutes of me having a question. <laughs> like, it might be a bit yeah. excessive. I, I would say as close to immediate as possible um, is desired. Um, what is doable is an entirely different story, probably for every team, every organization. Every product owner. Um, every product owner. I think... Um, part of availability is, um, you know, we, we were kind of talking about Jim McCarthy before we came in here in the core protocols. I think, you know, one of it is presence. Like, I think physical presence of a product owner is key to availability because I think it's not just about being able to ask questions, but I think that there's also like a fear of, you know, how do we talk about product? Right. And so there's so many times as a developer where you're working on something and you're really talking not about code, but you're talking about experience or you're talking about uh, functionality or interpretation of uh, conditions of satisfaction or acceptance criteria, whatever you want to call them, where if there's that kind of physical proximity or presence it allows for a product owner to say, hey, that doesn't really matter. Don't bother arguing about it. Just go ahead and implement it. Or it allows them to basically jump into the conversation almost immediately. I think one of the things that developers tend to do is not talk to product because they think they're not allowed. Right? When we come from this world of requirements, once a product owner tells us A or B, like we're incompetent if we have to go back for clarification. So I think the availability to clarify is monumentally important so what are some maybe dysfunctions um you know if i think a lot of product owners probably are not that dedicated to the team and they probably spend a lot of time in meetings or on the phone or doing whatever um you know what are some problems you might encounter if you don't have that presence of the, for the product owner so what i usually see is um it really screws up the planning meeting for for multiple different reasons the first being is that because a product owner wasn't available throughout the week, a lot, um, I've seen a lot of teams wait until the planning meeting to get acceptance. Is that like wait to the retrospective to talk about things? Right, because it's, it's the last minute that you could technically get acceptance before okay. the next thing, right? Like, you, like probably, obviously you should be doing it as soon as you finish feature, like as close to that as possible. But I, I've seen a lot of teams um, wait until the, to during planning. And the other thing that happens during planning is because the team is so fearful of needing to ask the product owner questions throughout the week, and knowing that the product owners are going to be available, they're going to want to try to like squeeze the product owner dry during the um, the planning session, which makes it really arduous. And they try to like think of everything that could possibly go wrong ever because they when it does happen, if it does happen, they might not have the product owner there to ask. Hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that you get a 
sense of people get fearful when they're making commitments if they don't think they have all the information, if they think they're only getting one chance to get the information. So right. if you kind of have a lot of uncertainty in product ownership during a sprint, um, teams tend to be more fearful to actually committing to work, where I think if you've got the higher certainty teams tend to be a little more um, willing to commit to things knowing that they're not going to be blocked by something out of their control in, in, in essence. So we've been talking about product uh, ownership and kind of related to that are stories. And I was asking Derek today about that, uh, the mnemonic for invest about stories and the V in there is for value, you know, and we talk a lot about delivering value to the customer. And, you know, what do you guys think about stories that, might deliver value in the future, but if it were, you know, shipped tomorrow, no one would use it and, you know, no one would get any value out of it. Is that even worth doing? Even if maybe it's a building block to something? That sounds kind of dangerous. Usually when I hear somebody think of a story as a building block, they're slicing the cake the wrong way. You know what I mean? Sure. So I, I think that's always a, that'd be my primary concern. It's like if it's not really adding value to the user now, then why are we building it now? I mean, I think for me, I like I hate this whole value discussion more than anything in so many ways because nobody can really define value. I mean, I've gotten into Twitter arguments over this that it made me want to pound my face into the concrete. Um, I, I think for me, the question becomes like, what are the goals? Right. So, what are you trying to do with this product? You know, are you trying to make money with the product? Are you trying to influence people with the product? Are you trying to get more users with the product? Are you trying to not lose users with the product? Like, what is it you're trying to do? And for me, where's the data that backs up that this particular story helps you get closer to that goal? If it's a building block, hey, we need to do this so that we can you know, do that. I think I'm okay with that. I get worried if it's a technical building block, like, hey, we need this technical building block in order, mm-hmm. in order to do this. If it's not really a technical building block, but rather, you know, hey, we need to implement this so that we can track this or so that we can you know, add this additional feature and, and that's what we really want and we believe that's when we get there. I'm okay with some of that. But to me, I think most product owners can't tell you shit. We're just doing this because it feels good or because a user's screaming about it or because like it's what we pulled out of our rear end before we came into this planning meeting, which yeah. I think is not del- probably not delivering value. If people came in and said, you know, we're doing this because we're losing users uh, and we really need this functionality in order to keep those users or, hey, we're trying to get into this new market or this new piece and we need to add this functionality to compete with so-and-so so we don't lose market share or grab, then I think we're having a different discussion. Mm-hmm. I'd say if product owners aren't talking in that kind of language, they're probably not doing due diligence around value delivery. You think there's some um, amount of maybe fear is not the right word, but if you've got a bunch of stuff in your backlog and maybe you're not thinking on those terms about that kind of way of thinking about value, um, if you were to actually do that, it might mean that you would have to throw away almost everything, right? Yeah. You know, you you might have to get rid of a lot of stuff, which is kind of scary. So is it better to kind of keep prodding along and hopefully you can find a few things here or there that actually do deliver value and then it's kind of okay that you did some stuff that maybe wasn't so important. So, so are you getting value out of having a large backlog? I mean, I, that's what it sounds like, like it to me. you fly no. under the radar to some yeah. Right, you're like, because you can say like, hey, we need to extend the budget for this team because look how much work is left. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is a lot of teams or a lot of product owners get fearful of if the backlog's not really big, then you know the product's not important. Um, I, I think there is something to say that there's 
value in being biased towards action. So sometimes maybe if you don't know what's valuable, um, not doing anything could be detrimental in the sense of you're not moving forward at all. However, I think if you're just moving forward and saying, hey, you know, action, we're delivering stories, uh, you fall into the potential of iterating to nowhere where the product is just kind of spinning its wheel- wheels. I think it's very similar to developers in the sense of I think developers uh, really get nervous about measurement. So if you talk about velocity or estimating or anything, most developers freak out on that and want nothing to do with it because they think it's going to be used against them or that they might be seen as failures, you name it. I think product owners are the same way. If you start to say, you know, hey, this feature should drive revenue by X and it doesn't, I was wrong. I failed, right? Or, hey, this is going to land us the new customer and it doesn't. Shit, I failed, right? And so I think there's that same kind of mental block of, you know, I don't want to do the research and make predictions about, you know, what functionality is going to do for this product because what happens if I'm wrong? So regarding regarding the idea of like having that big backlog just to like keep the big backlog around, I think there can also be a difference between having a cluttered backlog and a large backlog because I, I think... What I what I've seen is keeping a lot of like and what you described like keeping a bunch of random stories thrown in there that uh, all may or may not they actually get add value. to the bottom every week. Right, exactly. But you can still have a large backlog and still say like we have a year's worth of work or whatever in the backlog, but have really large epics. Right. So say you want to build out this whole new component instead of breaking that down early. Like, don't waste the time on that. Just say, like, we want to add this gigantic new component at some point or deliver that giant piece of value. And then if you get to it and it becomes a priority, then you start to break it down closer and cl- as it gets closer and closer to when you actually work on it. And that allows you to keep a really clean backlog because most of your really far out stuff are, like, abstract ideas that haven't been worked out. So if we kind of agree that things that are further out time-wise are maybe not worth spending a lot of time breaking down because, mm-hmm. you know, world changes kind of thing. Um, do you think that the frequency of your delivery or deployment makes a big difference? You know, if I only deploy once every four months, it, like, does it even make sense for me to worry about defining things that are, you know, in, in that I want to do in nine months or 12 months because I'm only really ever going to deploy four times a year. Uh, maybe I, you know, um, I could I could see Does that, that make a difference at all. I, I think there's companies that do budgeting on an annual basis, so you might need it for that to be able to justify your budget for an entire year's worth of work. Like I could see a product owner needing to do that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's some some. I, I think for me, it's probably less about when you release um, and more about the release plans. So I think there's a lot of people that do release plans but don't really release. Right, so I mean, I, I think when you start to do more continuous delivery, it starts to make your release plan a hell of a lot more real. Because you, you're actually owning what you're releasing because you're releasing consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, where when you release infrequently or you d- deploy infrequently, you can kind of constantly move your release date around. You can start to say like, oh, well, it was supposed to be six weeks, but now it's going to be eight weeks or it's going to be 10 weeks or it's going to be 12. You know, you can kind of just keep moving that stick and have that perpetual, like, let's just add more shit into the product before the next release. Where if you have that continuous deployment, you know, continuous deployment happening, like you don't get the the ability to say like let's keep dicking around with our release date it's going to our customers at the end of the week and then with or without this feature right yeah Yeah, no matter what so you mentioned continuous delivery or deployment and there was a good infographic that was kind of going around that kind of simplified those two terms and i believe that continuous um delivery was you know everything's automated from i check in the code and the test run on the ci server and maybe it gets deployed to some staging place and acceptance test run but the the action of actually deploying that to the customer was a manual step, whereas continuous delivery was more of a, the whole thing was all automated. 
Uh, sorry, deployment, yeah. Integration versus deployment, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. so the the idea, and I think you would mentioned maybe Twitter and Facebook have a model that's like this where um, you know, I make some code changes and it goes out. It doesn't necessarily go out to Facebook.com, but maybe it goes out to some subset of the server so that some part of the user base might get that and that kind of thing. Um, and roll it out to everybody else and that it's completely automated. Now, I would guess most people, especially if you consider yourself an enterprise kind of company, the idea of pressing commit in your source control and having that go out. So any developer could commit you know, code directly to our users? Yeah, I mean, that like the idea of if everything's green, we ship is probably pretty scary. Uh, but do you think a lot of people could gain from having a system like that? And talk about having to own your work, right? Talk about pride and work. That's true. You know, I mean, seriously, yeah. I mean, you know, one of the early stories that had kind of come from Twitter that had impressed me is um, they had gone on live uh, online live with Oprah and, uh, you know, Biz or one of them was, you know, on, maybe it was Ev was on Oprah and they were doing deploys during the airing of that show. Now, I mean, that would be normally like completely crazy if I'm some big company, if I'm Ford or something and uh, we have a big Super Bowl ad running, I probably am going to tell everybody no deployments for the next, you know, two weeks right. because like, you know, we yeah. have to deal with all this traffic. Where, Feature freeze. Well, but like with a company like Twitter, the problem is they had to. They didn't have a choice, right? Because their their system was so growing so dynamically that adding an extra million users during an Oprah show had a real effect to the performance of their system to where, okay, yeah, we could wait until, you know, the West Coast showing views, right, and then start, like, screwing around with things. Uh, But then the experience is crappy for everybody. Or we can go in and see this performance bottleneck that we see right this minute, make the change, you know, deploy it to, you know, a small subset of users, make sure that nothing's coming back failing, and then let it propagate into the entire base, right? You know, which is... Which is a worse move, right? Looking looking bad performance wise, right? Or trying to fix those on the fly, and then if something goes wrong, having to recover. And I think part of it is when you get to continuous deployment, you're a hell of a lot uh, less afraid of doing those kind of things because you do it all the time. If mm-hmm. you're if you're deploying every commit, your process is pretty probably pretty damn solid if something goes wrong being able to roll back. If you only release once a year, your process is probably so crappy that if something goes wrong, it is like a week-long catastrophe thing. Yeah. for months to clean it up. So I think that plays a lot into it as well. Yeah, but, it's one of the things I really like about continuous integration um, is the idea of you know having, having the code basically be able to compile and run all the tests. All the benefit you get from that uh, is so far beyond just the fact that you have a CI server, mm-hmm. but the, all the work that goes into making that actually happen. And I think the same thing is true for continuous deployment, although at a much larger scale. You know, right. If you only deliver once a year, it's okay if everyone spends two weeks doing a bunch of manual stuff because it doesn't seem that painful. If you're doing it every two weeks or something, I mean, that stuff's going to get automated real quick and you're going to fix a whole bunch of stuff, and especially the rollback stuff. You know, it's like the fear just goes out the window at that point. And if you're doing continuous deployment where it's going out like as a constant stream, like then it becomes even more so, right? Because then every single, like if you check in some bad code that breaks a build and I need my feature to go live now, like we need to have that conversation now because it needs to be out by the end of the day. So none of that stuff gets postponed. Yeah. And I think probably the chances of people breaking the build as casually as they would otherwise is probably Mm -hmm. much lower. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up. We're at our 15 minutes here. So thanks, guys. Thanks. Bye-bye. Is there something you'd like to hear in a future episode? Head over to IntegrumTech.com slash podcast where you can suggest a topic or a guest. 
Looking for an easy way to stay up to date with the latest news, techniques, and events in the Agile community? Sign up today at agileweekly.com. It's the best Agile content delivered weekly for free. The Agile Weekly podcast is brought to you by Integrum Technologies and recorded at Gangplank Studios in Chandler, Arizona. For old episodes, check out integrumtech.com or subscribe on iTunes. Need help with your Agile transition? Have a question and need to phone a friend? Try calling the Agile Hotline. It's free. Call 866-244-8656.